0: Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to Office Hours. I'm your host, Daniel Pink, broadcasting from our state-of-the-art facility here in my garage in Washington, D.C. Thanks for being one of the uh, eight or nine hundred right now, listening live right now, or the tens of thousands listening to this recording on iTunes. Think about your life for a moment not only what you do, but why you do it. You work at your job. You spend time with your family. You go to your church, your synagogue, or your mosque. You watch your kids hit baseballs and kick soccer balls and watch them swim laps and jump hurdles and play the violin and sing on stage. You attend your book club or your homeowner's association meeting, and then you come back and you listen to music or watch a little Netflix or read a few magazines. But What's the point? What's it all about? When you peel back the layers of our lives, it's ultimately about happiness, right? We want to be happy, not only in the smiling, giddy sense of that word, but also in the calmer, quieter, more satisfied sense. Happiness, it's the sun around which our lives orbit, or perhaps the moon that pulls our tides. Today's guest is an expert on the topic. She began her career as a Supreme Court clerk and then a lawyer. Then she bailed on the law to become a writer. She wrote books about Winston Churchill and John F. Kennedy, among other things. And then in 2009, she wrote The Happiness Project. That's the the culmination of years of studying happiness and trying to apply its principles very precisely, very concretely in her everyday life. That book was a blockbuster, touched a huge chord with readers, and now she's back with a great new book called Happier at Home. Subtitle is Kiss More, Jump More, Abandon a Project, Read Samuel Johnson, and My Other Experiments in the Practice of Everyday Life. Gretchen Rubin, welcome to Office Hours.
1: Well, I'm very happy to be speaking to you today. All right. Well, let me explain
0: to you and to our audience how Office Hours works. On each program, we open up the phone lines for an hour, and our guest and I will take your questions, questions about work or business or life or careers or education or anything you want. As we like to say, if you have questions, we have answers. And when we don't, we make something up. And (laughs) as we also like to say, this program we like to think of as car talk, but for the human engine. And this is, Gretchen stuff is just great, great material for for that uh, aspiration. Now, for uh, all of you listening live, remember how it works here. Uh, If you'd like to ask a question, just press star two on your phone. If you want to ask a question, okay, we got people doing it already press star 2 on your phone. Uh, that will allow our crack team of producers to see you on the control panel. Uh, I'll say your name, uh, like uh, Fernando in Bakersfield. You're on the air and you can ask away. Uh, we've also found, and this has worked uh, quite spectacularly actually, um, that people like to ask questions on Twitter as well. And for that, uh if you want to ask a question on Twitter, just include my handle, at Daniel Pink, at Daniel Pink for Twitter questions. Um, so, but first, I get to ask Gretchen some questions before you guys raise your hands and press star two. So, um, let's talk, Gretchen. This book is, is a story of a happiness project, but it's really, actually, in many ways, your second happiness project. Why don't you, for the folks who, who, the two or three people in North America who might not know, why don't you tell us about that first happiness project?
1: Well, I, one day on a city bus, I had I had this moment of reflection that you rarely get in everyday life when I thought, what do I want from life anyway? And I thought, I want to be happy, but I realized I never spent any time thinking about whether I was happy or if I could be happier. And in a flash, I thought, I should have a happiness project. And I went to the library the next day and got a giant stack of books about happiness and started to do research to find out, well, what? What was the wisdom of the ages and the current scientific studies um, saying about how to be happier? And I, I had just started it, thinking that I would do my own happiness project, when I decided that I would it would make a great book. So what I did is I took I decided I would do it for a year because a year seemed like you know a manageable amount of time, but when you could I could actually make changes. And I I gave every month a theme like energy, friends, work, leisure, marriage, parenthood. Thing, the things that I thought mattered the most to my happiness, and then I tried to figure out, say, four very concrete, specific resolutions that I could follow in that area that I thought would make me happier. Um, so, if for energy, um, I focused on things like getting enough sleep. Well, you know, a lot mm-hmm. of adults don't get enough sleep, or, oh, okay. you know, uh, tackling nagging tasks, because nagging tasks really weigh us down. They don't literally sap our energy, but they certainly figuratively sap our energy. And so I went through the year adding more and more resolutions to see if I could boost my happiness just by doing these very realistic resolutions, you know, things that didn't take a lot of time, energy, or money, because uh, I didn't have a lot of extra time, energy, and money to, de- to dedicate to this. I wanted to do it as just part of my ordinary routine.
0: And, and the result was 12 months of kind of sort of a meta project and composed of mini projects.
1: Exactly. So I had, and, so there was the so overarching yeah, process. Give us
0: a taste of, give us a taste of, 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 one or two or three, you know, two or three of the things that you, you actually did day to day to elevate your happiness or, or even the ones that might not have worked out so well. I just want to give folks listening out there a taste of, of, um, at a kind of granular level about, you know, what you were actually doing there.
1: Well, like one thing I wanted to do, I started singing in the morning because one of the big principles that I learned was that we think we act because of the way we feel, but a lot of times we feel because of the I, way we act. So by I, doing something, by singing in the morning, I made myself not only act more cheerful and lighthearted, but feel more cheerful and lighthearted. Or um, I'm one of these people that hates, I'm what I call an underbuyer. I hate to buy things, like to the point uh, where I don't have things that I need. Um, like toilet paper, Um, and so one of my resolutions was to buy needful things and to really resolve that I was going to really force myself to buy the things that I needed, and that made my life much more pleasant. And for things like friends, I had the resolution, um, make three new friends. In every situation that I'm in now, I really try to say, can I make three new friends out of this situation, which sounds sort of ridiculously um, numerically specific, but it, it helps... Shape my attitude, you know that I'm looking to make a friend, Um, or uh, you know, don't gossip because gossiping is so fun, but it's really not nice. Um, I started a (laughs) blog. That's probably one of the most gigantic things that I did, and I did it in. in, I, I did it like my gratitude. Notebook. You know, all the happiness researchers say, keep a gratitude notebook and write down three things you're grateful for each day. That was something that did not work for me. I was incredibly annoyed by my gratitude journal. I have other things that I do to cultivate what gratitude. Were you, what were you
0: annoyed by? That's curious. What were you annoyed
1: by in your gratitude It's just journal? an annoying process. It's like uh-huh. either I was saying things like I'm grateful for electricity, you know, like there were okay. so many <laughs> super basic things, or I don't know, just the whole process. Really did not make me feel grateful. Um, And then I've read later research saying you shouldn't do it every day. You should do it less Uh, frequently than every day. But I have other gratitude practices because it's definitely very important for a happy life to cultivate gratitude. But Gratitude Notebook. uh,
0: Give us one of those other gratitude practices. It happens to be a peculiar interest of mine. I have my own peculiar gratitude practice, which I'm happy to share with you listeners here in a moment. But tell me what gratitude practices did work for you.
1: Well so one of it for happier at home I was really focused on home and I wanted to uh amplify my feelings of gratefulness for my home. So one of the things I live in an apartment building where you have to turn two locks to get in so there's sort of a forced pause um and so when I do that I really try to um remind myself I'm so happy to be home. Here I am in my yeah. in my yeah, yeah. in my apartment and and to put myself in a grateful you know uh calm family frame of mind, um, I also, every time I sit down at my laptop, like I love, I love writing and I used to be a lawyer, so I really appreciate getting to be a writer. And every time I sit down at the computer or the laptop, I think how happy I am to be working, to be doing the work that I want to be doing, and don't take that for granted. Um, I've heard of people having screensavers, um, and then of course before meals is a very, very common time for gratitude. Sure. So what's, what's your gratitude practice?
0: Well, um, I, I, it's not anything I can do. There's very little I can do daily um, and sustain it. I mean, teeth brushing is probably in that category and not much else. Um, so I started this practice years ago where on my birthday ah. I would list what I was grateful for, and the list would grow to the number number of items would, would be the same as the number of years. So each year. So, Again, if it's not totally clear to listeners out there, so when I was 41, I had 41 items on the gratitude list. When I was 42, I had 42 items, and I think people will detect the pattern there. And it, and it ended up being kind of interesting because it ended up, for, at least for me, being a mix of, you know, incredibly high in the sense of elevated and significant and incredibly low. Uh, so, you know, I would have on the same list of what I was happy about, uh, or grateful for rather, um, that my kids were healthy, okay? Like, you yeah. don't get anything bigger than that. But I would also have, like, number 37, red wine, uh, number 42, cheese fries. Um, and it ended up being this kind of, at least for me, this interesting mix. But I think the ritual of of, of doing it is really what's what's the case. And, and gratitude is, um, I, I mean, as you know and as you've written about, it's so profoundly, deeply important for people's level of satisfaction. So you end the book, The Happiness Project, and it seems, Gretchen, at least to me as, as as someone who had the good privilege of reading the book fairly early in the game, that you ended the book actually kind of happy.
1: Well, the thing is, I was pretty happy when I started. Um, I was not a person <laughs> who was starting from a place of crisis or depression right. or deep unhappiness. Um, I was pretty right. happy, which makes me very typical. Most people all around the world, if you say, uh-huh. yeah. are you happy? People say that they're pretty happy or very happy. So most people are pretty happy. Um, I de- and my inner nature has not changed. You know, I mean, I think we all have kind of the place that we go in neutral, um, and some people that's higher on the scale, and some yeah. people clearly it's lower on the scale. And so my inner nature did not change, um, but my experience of my life is happier um, because my because my day was more filled with all the things that I enjoyed and and loved and was enthusiastic about. And I had so much less of the things that made me feel guilty or angry or resentful or bored. Um, but having done one happiness project, instead of thinking like, oh, well, now I'm as happy as I can be, um, it actually taught me, wow, with like with mindful attention and really thinking through a lot of the things in my life that are that I'm doing on automatic or autopilot or just in default mode, I can really make significant changes without really all that much effort. Um, just by training my attention on them. And so having done one really made me uh, convinced of the value of doing it again, given that I had other things that I wanted to focus on that I hadn't in the first one understood or, or um, grappled with.
0: And that leads us to this, the new book, uh, Happier at Home, which we're going to talk about here in a moment. We're, you're listening to Office Hours with author Gretchen Rubin, if you want to ask a question, just press star 2 on your phone, and you'll be in line to essentially raise your hand electronically so we can see you and then try to call on you if we have time. Um, if you're listening to this broadcast on iTunes, please do not press star 2 on your phone. Nothing will happen. Uh, so that leads, that leads right into this, this new book, which begins in a way that no other book I've read begins, with an epiphany at the dishwasher. Tell us about that.
1: Yes, well it was a very uh, ordinary moment for sure. I was standing in my own kitchen unloading the dishwasher. I could hear my husband in the next room. Uh you know, he was watching a golf uh he was watching golf on television and my daughters were playing restaurant when I was suddenly struck by an intense wave of homesickness. I felt the way I did when I went to summer camp for the mm. first time. And this was such a puzzling feeling because why was I feeling homesick If I was standing right in the middle of my own home, I couldn't have been a more homely moment. And what I realized is I was feeling almost a kind of perspective nostalgia, as if I were 30 years Mm. in the future, thinking back with yearning to what I have right now and right here. And the intensity and sort of puzzling nature of this emotion really got me to focus for the first time. I'd done all this research, writing, and thinking about happiness, but I had never really looked at it through the lens of home. And it immediately struck me that home is, for me and I think for a lot of people, is the foundation. It's the springboard to the rest of our life. And, mm. and, and so many elements of a happy life converge in home. So the minute I had this feeling, I was like, oh, my gosh, I want to do another happiness project, and this time really focus in on this idea of being happier at home, and to get that foundation as as, as happy as I could.
0: Uh, right. So you set out to do another happiness project, and this one had a slightly different time horizon here. <laughs> uh, because, uh, as as we all know, especially those of us who are parents with kids in school, uh, September is really the beginning of the year. Yes. So you yeah, started. A lot of people
1: into- say that they feel like September. Is you know September is the other January, and for a lot of people, it's it's a much more kind of New Year resolution oh, totally. time of year. It's kind of new notebooks, fresh pencils, you Got know, a, a brand new start. You feel like you, you you've kind of moved forward and you're ready to tackle things in a new way. So, um, yeah, it seemed like that would be a good time to, to to start a project.
0: Okay, and so in September you decided to tackle possessions. Yes, tell us about that.
1: Well, I pick possessions not because possessions are the most significant element to a happy life, which they are not, but there does seem to be something about possessions that weigh us down. They can weigh us down, get in our way, make us feel overwhelmed. And so getting getting control over possessions seems to help. It certainly works for me, and I think for most people. It helps give you the energy and good cheer to tackle more significant resolutions that might be more challenging. And there's something – there's just an almost uncanny connection um, between uh, – about with possessions. And for most people, outer order contributes to inner calm more than mm-hmm. it should. Like, I, I really mm-hmm. am puzzled mm-hmm. over and over by the fact that cleaning out your refrigerator – Makes you feel like you can apply for a new job, or you know, getting rid of the stuff on your desk makes you feel like you can finally work on that project you've been procrastinating about. There's just this weird connection between getting control over the I mean, stuff I in I wonder, your life.
0: Why do you yeah. think that is? It makes perfect sense to me. I mean, I think about my own, I think about my own life. I mean, not only as a writer who procrastinates, so if I'm on deadline, the first thing I need to do is, is clean out my desk. But yes. um, but why do you think that is? That feeling of kind of clean slate or order or something like that? I mean, why, why, why do you think we, we believe it transfers to other realms of our life?
1: You know, I think it's puzzling to me that the effect is as strong as it is. Because uh, because why does it really matter if there if there's too many coats in your coat closet? Or why does it really I, matter if you have too many leftovers in your refrigerator? But over and over, people say to me, I feel like I've lost weight. I feel like a load has gone, is, uh. it's dropped off my back. I feel like I can think clearly for the first time. There's just something, and there even seems to be something soothing. You can almost self-medicate by clutter clearing. Um, and safe. if you do feel paralyzed and you, don't, and you do feel like um, you don't know what to do, sometimes just cleaning up or creating external order helps to calm your mind and give you energy. And here's a weird thing. I've talked, you know, over the years I've talked to, a hundred, I mean, I don't know how many people who have done their own happiness projects, and I always say, well, what did you try? What worked for you? And, I'm, and, and I've heard of, you know, innumerable resolutions that people have tried. But the number one resolution that people specifically mention to me as something that they tried and helped their happiness is the resolution to make your bed. It's such a small, almost meaningless action, and yet over and over oh. people mention this to me as something that makes them feel like they're starting the day right and makes them feel happier. And there's, like, there's nothing more manageable than making your bed.
0: Oh, I totally am with the, the bed-making crowd on that. It just, it, it's up, it, to me, it's, like, emotionally hygienic yeah. in a way that brushing yes. your teeth is physically hygienic. I mean, exactly. it's, like, it's, all, it's sort of unimaginable to sort of get things going without making your bed. I mean, come on. Now, you can. We. Uh, this is not a conversation that. That. This is not a, a. A. An argument that goes over particularly well with our three children, who seem to have no hygienic problem not making their beds. So but that's. No, I have the same
1: story. problem. I. I actually make my children's bed. I. I need to work on training oh. them to do it themselves. But. Yeah.
0: You make your children's bed.
1: Yeah, I know. What, I should oh, work oh, on that. That's
0: right, that's what, of course, of course, it's in the book, right? You talk about that in the book, so. um yeah. Yeah, so let's, um, we we have some people. We got a lot of often have a lot of educators. So tell us the pros and cons about that. Absolutely, you talk about that in the book. So what? Um,
1: oh, there's no pro <laughs> to it. I mean, the, the, I, no. I wish they would make their own beds. I just yeah. haven't been. I just haven't been adamant yeah. enough about them doing it. Yeah, um, yeah. And I, you know, and is- uh, and I, I yeah, so. Uh, there's My, no, no logic to it. we got someone on a uh,
0: uh, funny tweet here, and we've got some questions coming in on Twitter, Gretchen, that I might interrupt our conversation here for a moment to take, but we have somebody here uh, uh, coming in that says, clearly I need to try this bed-making thing of which you speak. Um, <laughs> so let me, let's take another question from Twitter. It's not directly on point for what we're talking about here, because I want to get to there, – so, there are a number of things I want to get to, Gretchen, just to preview this for our listeners here. Uh, I want to talk about Sandra Johnson. And I want to talk about shrines, um, and I want to talk about uh, some of the splendid truth. But, but there's a, a question here from uh, from Andrew Hank on Twitter. Andrew is in Los Angeles, California, and and he says, "How do you see the research on work flex, I meaning it gets flexible workplaces, changing happiness and satisfaction for our evolving workplace?" Um, and I, and one, one reason I think it's an interesting question to ask you, Gretchen, is that you, like me, like many of our listeners we have a kind of a blurry boundary between what is home and what is work. So um, what what are your thoughts on the research on work flexibility and happiness and satisfaction in the workplace?
1: Well, one of the things that's very clear about happiness is that a sense of control matters Mm -hmm. a lot to happiness. Uh, And, like, when you look at why people are happy at work, if they say, I can do my work in my own way, that's something that contributes to their happiness. So a feeling of control um, is very helpful to happiness and and as you would expect, a feeling of not being in control, not being in control of your time, not being in control of your work um, is is drags your happiness down and so in that way, flexibility is great because people have more control and they don 't have you know unnecessary i mean um, stress one of the things i feel like as a writer is i never have to be i rarely have to be in a particular place at a particular time dressed in a particular way i have many demands on me but i have a lot of flexibility in how i meet them and so that makes my stress level go down even though i'm i'm working a lot now one of the things though about the blurring of the of the workplace and the home is that people have this they have a cubicle in their pocket they never leave work. They always yeah. feel like, I could be working, I should be working, I am working, um, and they don't have a sense of leisure. Because, you know, in the old days, you think 9 to 5, and at 5 o'clock, you'd go home. And when you were at home, you were at leisure, and when you were at work, you were at work. But now, it's, it's, it's much more fluid for many, many different kinds of people in many different kinds of jobs. And so I think one of the challenges for us now is to think through how to handle that in a way so that... You know, technology is a good servant but a bad master. And how do you make sure that technology is helping you do your work in your way and is contributing to um, what you're trying to do and get out of your life and not just taking over everything and making you feel hunted and and like you're never at leisure. You can never goof off because you're always thinking, oh, I better check or, ooh, I should be doing this, or if I'm not doing it, I could be doing it, or why am I not doing it? Always feeling like you're sneaking away from work instead of truly being at rest, and I think this is one of the things about home I thought about a lot because I think home, we, we have an expectation that home will be a place of repose and a place mm. of leisure and a place to recharge your energy. But for a lot of people, whether they work at home like you and me or, you know, at least partially at home, or they just bring their home, their work with them, or even if they're just charging around putting in another load of a laundry in all the time, um, home doesn't always have that unhurriedness, that leisure, that sense of, of play and rest. And so I think for a lot of us, we really have to mindfully figure out how we're going to make sure that we get that experience. Because if you don't, you just run yourself ragged and, and, uh, and burn yourself out.
0: Yeah, and you have some rules for that, which I want to get to here. In a, some, some rules for yeah. – the lovely. I like, I like the phrase a lot, the cubicle um, in your pocket. But you have some mm-hmm. rules on how to, how to manage that. Uh, But first, I just want to remind listeners, whether you're listening on iTunes or whether you're listening live here on a beautiful Friday afternoon, our guest is Gretchen Rubin. She is the author, most recently, of Happier at Home, Kiss More, Jump More, Abandon a Project, Read Samuel Johnson, and My Other Experiment in the Practice of Everyday Life. It's her new book after the blockbuster Happiness Project, if you are listening live right now and want to ask Gretchen, Gretchen a question, we got a few folks lined up, but i got a lot of questions on my own, so you're going to have to wait. It's my show. Um, just press star 2 on your phone, star 2 on your phone, and that will allow you to get in the queue to ask Gretchen a question. But let's go back to this cubicle in your pocket uh, with, with some of your rules. Now, one of them I found very difficult to handle, which is mm. – I don't check my email or talk on the phone when I'm traveling from one place to another, whether by foot, bus, subway, or taxi.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: How do you do that?
1: Well, I mean, I do I like, I like I'm at the airport. Moments. I do. Okay, what? airport
0: is okay. is
1: okay. What about in okay. a taxi
0: or on a subway? Or I guess walking could could present some danger to your body and uh-huh. you
1: know, yourself. Well, you know, and I don't think this would be true for everyone. So again, all my rules are related to my own idiosyncrasies. But yeah. what I I found that I didn't I didn't feel like checking it, but I was really trying to force myself to do it because I thought that would be a more efficient use of time. But then when I thought back on my life and my experience as a writer, I realized that almost every time I've had a major idea, like the kind of idea that that makes me write a book about a subject, or right. the kind of you know idea that I, leads to a year years long obsession. It has always happened to me when I was walking or on the bus or in a taxi or on the subway. And I could yep. go through with you and tell you exactly where I was, like what the intersection yep. was, what the subway stop was. And I thought, you know what? If I'm checking my email all the time, I may never have another big idea as long as I live because I'll be too distracted. I won't be in that, especially walking. I mean, walking is the best. But there's this kind of, loop. for me, this is a time of kind of loose association daydreaming, where yeah. my thoughts combine. And I think for some people it's in the shower. Um, some people get it by talking. I mean, everybody knows themselves and, 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 uh, and, and how they work. But I realized, you know, for me this is really important thinking time. And, of course, it doesn't – I don't get a big idea all that often, so there's a lot of time where I'm just staring out the window, spacing out. But I thought, you know, I, I don't feel like checking it, but, and I'm not going to make myself check because there is a valuable, because sometimes there's, you know, you have to allow yourself to wander, and you have to let yourself um, have these, this downtime. because I think if you're too occupied all the time, then there's no time for anything original to spontaneously combust.
0: Right. I, I don't remember whether you mentioned this book. You very well could, or it might be in your, your bibliography, good bibliography, by the way, but there's an interesting book um, a guy who is a, a Harvard Medical School professor named Herbert Benson, who has studied some of what you're talking about, and there's actually a, a significant amount of proof, scientific proof behind this idea that people often have what he calls their breakout thoughts um, in those kinds of interstitial moments.
1: Yeah, like shaving. I think a lot of like big phys- physicists have ideas while shaving. I think I read. Yeah, um,
0: it, but it's, it's those kinds of things where you're you're on almost a different frequency and it could be yes. for, it, it could be, it could be shaving. Uh, and, and actually Benson in his book, he has a popular book. Let me see if our, if our um, crack intern here can find it for me. Um, Joe, the crack intern is finding it here. The breakout principle, the breakout principle is the popularization of this book by Benson. And, and he says people have their own kinds of, I haven't read it for a few years, but, of course, that won't stop me from talking about it. It's a – people have their own kinds of triggers, and, and for some people it's actually water could be a trigger. So it could be, you know, washing their hands and face or taking a shower or that sort of thing. For other people, for many people, it's motion, which it seems like what yours is, that when yeah. you're in motion, it ends up being that way. So it's actually a really good – I mean, that's actually a really good point because I was sort of – I mean, I spend – you know, if, if I get into a taxi or something like that, I, I'm on my phone immediately just because I want to – you know, deal with that thing that's right in front of me at that moment. Right. Uh, but what's interesting is you also say something interesting, and, and, and in my view is that people have a bottomless appetite for how other people work and what their productivity practices are. Yes. I think in that very same section you talk about how you actually deal with your email first before you get to your other work.
1: Yes, and that's against all the, all the, all the advice that anybody would ever give you, which is that you should do your own priorities for, first. And um, and do things like email later in the day when you're when you're more tired out and it's and it's sort of less valuable brain space. Um, but I feel I'm like so I'm kind of restless and distracted unless until I go through all of my different email, Gmail, Twitter, Facebook, all you know, go through all the things to sort of check in. And I I finally realized I couldn't fight my own nature, and I wasn't gonna sit. I, I wasn't gonna feel like I could really concentrate until I knew that there was no there was no emergency or there was no there was nothing pressing or something that i needed to know and i just felt like i'd cleared the decks that way um yeah. but it's interesting the kind of um i i talk about different kinds of hurry that you feel like in your day like there are all these different modes of hurry and the hurry you're talking about is treadmill hurry i think i think that's what you're describing where you're like i have to stay on top of it because if I don't, I'll just I, I, I'll fall so far behind. So I have to stay totally. on the treadmill because it's too. If I get off, it's too hard to get back on, and um, and that is something that's I think especially with something like email, it's like you've got to stay on it or you're going to have a thousand emails to deal with, and that just seems so overwhelming that it's just easier to check it every 10 minutes.
0: Uh, yeah, and you're describing kind of the, my, the dark night of my soul last night. This is only <laughs> appropriate to those of you listening live. So of course. The Pink family uh, is attending game four of the National League Division Series where our beloved Washington Nationals are are playing the hated St. Louis Cardinals. And (laughs) having gone to two playoff games in a row, two consecutive days, which takes hours and hours of time, I fell behind on my email. So I was getting a little Uh. bit nervous about that. And then as we prepared to get into the taxi to go back to the Pink House, my phone died. Uh And it was a tough moment for me, Gretchen. But I'm not going to ask you for therapy here. Instead, I'm going to go to a question on Twitter from a guy named Buzz. Buzz in Ponte Verde, Ponte Ponte Vedra Beach, Florida. Ponte Vedra Beach. He's in Florida. Buzz is, and he has a question. It's a good question. He says, "How has Gretchen sustained uh, her new behavior when you try something like this? Did she keep a chart or some checks and balances to keep it up?"
1: Yes, I I have a chart that I keep that I modeled after Benjamin Franklin's virtues chart. So I write right. down every resolution and then I check off whether I'm keeping it or breaking it. So that's how I hold myself accountable for whether I'm I'm doing the things that I have resolved to do. Um and what I, and there's also sort of a side benefit to it that I hadn't ex- anticipated which is with a lot of resolutions, they don't come up every day. There's not always an occasion for a resolution. And so you can kind of forget about it, but I find that by reviewing them every night, I I keep them very energized in my mind. And so when I'm in an occasion where – I would have the opportunity, like say one of my resolutions is to underreact to a problem. Like I tend to be one of these people who flares up and is very, yeah. you know, very, and, and that makes everybody else more stressed out too. If I have a big reaction, then everybody else has a big exactly. reaction too. And then and then everything feels is, is, is more painful than it needs to be. That's the so one of my resolutions is to underreact not to dismiss problems but just try to underreact, but, but I don't always have an opportunity to do that, but to make sure that I remember when I'm in an occasion, you know, it's like saying count to 10 when you're mad and you're like, well, but I'm so mad. I don't remember to count to 10 until like an hour later by yes. repeatedly going over it. I help myself remember it at the moment when I need to remember it.
0: Right. Okay. That's, 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 that's good advice. And I, I'm going to get to some uh, listening to here in a moment because I've, I've kind of, overstayed my host welcome here asking you questions, but I do want to, that said, uh, I do want to come back to uh, Benjamin Franklin because he's important to this book, and mm-hmm. I also want to come back to Samuel Johnson, um, who is also he, he was also important to this book, and I, I think those offer us a really interesting way to get at some of these issues, I think a really novel and, and substantive and curious way to get here, but let's go, um, we go to the, we're going to go to uh, our a caller here, actually, unfortunately, I don't have a name, but I know that you're in You've been waiting a long time, and you're in Pasadena, California. So Pasadena, uh, you're on the air with Gretchen Rubin. What's your question? Pasadena, are you there? Pasadena. If you're in anywhere close to Pasadena, Anaheim, Pasadena. All right, Pasadena is not there. Let's go to uh, uh, Mankato or Mankato, uh, Minnesota. Uh, Mankato, Mankato, Minnesota. You're on the air with Gretchen Rubin. What's your question? Yes, I've enjoyed the show. Go Cardinals tonight. Oh, uh, cut this caller off. Um, (laughs) uh, No, Uh, is it Mankato or Mankato? Are you still there, Mankato? Folks, we did not cut him
1: off.
0: (laughs) Mankato, are you there? Mankato just disappeared. Maybe he'll come back in. We did not cut him off for being a Cardinals fan. I should have. Let's try Pasadena one more time. Sorry about that. This is the um, – let's go, let's go back to Pasadena here for a second, because they're still in line. Pasadena, are you still there? Pasadena, your number ends in seven zero. Okay. So I'm going to keep asking some questions here. We're going to try to work out some of these technical difficulties. Um, I think that his, his cry of "Go Cardinals" busted the system, or something like that. Yeah. So let's go back to let's go let's go back to um, let's go back to Samuel Johnson. I, I really, I mean, this is one of the things I really wanted to have you talk about because I don't think that he's that widely known in in, in America, 21st century America. So mm-hmm. why don't you tell us who he is and why he matters in your book?
1: Well, he's an 18th century writer and it shows. So, he's definitely <laughs> not for everyone, I would say. Right. Um he he's, he's he's he did the first um dictionary, so he's most famous for for doing the dictionary. Um and uh but he was br- this brilliant, very irascible, uh, eccentric person and he wrote many, many essays and many books and um he and I love essayists, Like I read all these these old essayists like Hazlitt and Butler and La Rochefoucauld, You know all these all this kind of thing. And um and I just love Samuel Johnson because first of all he's extremely funny, which is good in any writer. But um. He just to me, he really is able to identify aspects of human nature that when I when I read what he writes, I feel like I understand myself better and I understand human nature better. And you know, in just in just these throwaway lines, sometimes he's able to capture these very complex ideas. And and over and over, when I read it, I would feel like yes, now I understand the world. For example, he has this very so there was also a very 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 famous biography written of him called. Um, Life of Johnson by James Boswell, Sure. which yeah. is a wonderful book. Um, and it was, it's like Greatest Hits of Samuel Johnson, of which there are many. Um, and so there's this throwaway line where Johnson is offered wine, and he says, abstinence is as easy to me as temperance would be difficult, as he turned it down. And when I read that, I felt like, oh, my gosh, that is me. I am an abstainer. Like Johnson, I can say no, I don't want any, but it's very hard for me to be moderate. And this has been a hugely helpful thing for me to understand about myself. And I write about it all the time because I feel like so many people have the same sense of recognition when they when they hear these terms. Some people just find it much easier when faced with temptation to say, I never eat French fries. I never eat sugar. I never eat dessert. I never eat potato chips and just never have them rather than trying to say, I can have a few or I can have them sometimes. And having to try to manage temptation instead of just rejecting – just not having something entirely. And moderators and abstainers are always trying to convince each other that that the other side is wrong. And I don't think there's a wrong side or a right side. It's just whatever works for you. But it's just one of these things that in a few words, Johnson put his finger on something that made me feel like just the most gigantic light bulb went on over my head to explain myself to myself. And um, so I think he has a very, very deep insight into human nature, and he's and a brilliant writer too.
0: And, and when did, and when did you start reading Samuel Johnson? Is it something you came to in the course of this project, or is it something that you had encountered earlier?
1: I no, I love this kind of thing. So I have read Johnson for a long time, um, but then you know one of his one of his lines is uh, one of the epigraphs for 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 um, for happier at home, which is. Um, that uh to be happy at home is the ultimate result of all ambition, the end right. to which every enterprise and labor tends, which is debatable um, but, but think an so? interesting I, idea I, I, think,
0: I mean do you get people pushing back on that because I mean that quotation is if i 'm not is it the epigram gretchen it's central to the
1: yes, the animating
0: idea of the book yeah. um, but do you, do you get people pushing back on that 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 um
1: so well, to be happy
0: at home is, I mean, I'll, I'll you know, I think anytime everybody. you
1: make a, a universal, you make a universal yeah, yeah. generalization about human nature, there's always going to be people that prove you wrong. But I think it's certainly, I think it's true for many people, and it's certainly worth thinking about. Um, but so, you know, there's certain essays like this that I tend to reread and reread and reread, and as I'm in a different place in my own thinking and my own experience, then different. It's always fun for me to see what I underline because it's always slightly different from the last time I underlined it. Like I'm looking for different things. And this time, for some reason, um, although I have read him many times, it was just that Johnson really jumped out at me as, 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 as guiding thought, my thinking um, in terms of the subject.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Because, I, I mean, again, I mean, I, maybe I was extrapolating from my own experience. I'm not someone who had a huge familiarity with Samuel Johnson. Um, and I found that part... I found the references to him and so forth quite, you know, really quite fascinating. And, and it gives you a sense, even, you know, he was, what, two centuries ago, even it gives you three centuries ago, it gives you a sense of how much people have been grappling with this idea, these ideas for so long. Um, yeah. Let's go to, uh, we got a question we're going to try again on our crack system here. Uh, let's go to uh, Jane in Charlottesville, Virginia, home of the University of Virginia. Um, Jane, you're on the air.
1: Hey, um, I have got a question for Gretchen. So there are a ton of things I'd love to do to make myself happier, but I'm full up. And if I could only add one new habit to my day, what would it be? Oh, oh well, that question, depends Jane. on you. Um,
0: okay, so why don't you ask her a couple of questions to see if we can suss out something for her? Uh,
1: do you get enough sleep? Yes. Okay. Do you get a little bit? Do you get some exercise? Little. Um what do you what do you feel like would add the most to your happiness? What area? Probably exercise. You think so? Yeah, but I just I find it really dull. Uh-huh. I and saying, I huh? put it off. Yeah. Um would you like it better so if you did it a with th- a friend? Like if you went for a walk with a friend every morning? Could you do something like that? Hmm. I'm going to do doing stuff by myself. You like, so you like, you like an opportunity for solitude. How about would you listen to audio books, like books on tape or podcast? You can listen to podcasts of office hours. Definitely, um, or, definitely. Yeah, or could you okay. walk on a treadmill and watch television? Like, maybe are, are you a person who wants to, like, wishes that they had more time to watch television or watch movies? No, or not more so much. Like wishes to. I could listen to more podcasts and things, but it's like setting out a time of day to sit still and listen to something. Well, that's so the like thing you can up. do. You can go for a walk yeah. and listen to them. So then it wouldn't walking. be dull.
0: Yeah, I love this idea. I, this is a good idea. Thank you, Jane, for that call. It's a it's a Thank wonderful you. idea. From um, I, I like the idea of the um, the exercise through the walking uh, through the through the walking podcasts. Um, that that way everybody wins. Um, although, you know, I, it's interesting because I try to run a lot, and I have a hard time listening to anything substantive when I run. Um, for me, it's that kind of Herbert Benson zone out time, and every once in a while I even come up with an idea when I run. Um, but see, but I again, do. I think
1: that's why it's hard to come up with a universal truth like everybody should yeah. do this because, and especially with something like exercise, I think I will say this about exercise. I think a lot of times people think about the outcome they want, so they're like, "My friend's body looks great, so I'm going to take her Pilates class." Or everybody uh-huh. says I should do this, so I'm going to do this. And what you should, I think, it's more helpful to say like, "Do I want to have a chance to be by myself, or do I want to have a chance to be with other people? Do I like to do I like to be outside, or I don't really like to be outside? Do I want to have a chance to listen to books?" or watch television because if I really love to watch TV and I don't have any time to watch TV, maybe I'll get on the treadmill if that's my time to watch television. Or if it's a chance to be with a friend. Or maybe do I need to work with a trainer so I have accountability to somebody because otherwise I'm really not going to go. Or do I like taking a class because I like being with a lot of people. If you don't like to sweat, like let's say you don't have time to take a – like this is a big problem for women – it's like I don't have time to take a shower and do my makeup and get dressed and all this. There's a lot of exercise you can do that is real exercise that does not make you sweat. And so don't get locked into thinking that unless it's an hour spin class that leaves you drenched and exhausted, there's not there, then you can't do it. Because there's a lot of I, and I my roommate does nothing all week and she goes for a 16-mile run every Sunday morning at 4:30 a.m. So that people have all different solutions. You know, but you just have to think mindfully what is the right thing for you? What, what appeals to you?
0: Right, right. I right, that's good. We've got another question on, uh, coming in on Twitter here, Gretchen, um, which is uh, how much do these, the, the, the principles that you lay out, and this is really about happier at home. How, uh, the principles that you lay out and happier at home, um, how, sort of a two-part question. How have you applied them, if at all, to your own kids? Because, and, and Gretchen writes about her two daughters in the book and one of whose name is Eliza, which also happens to be the name of one of my daughters. Mm-hmm. And, and um, how, do they, how do these principles apply? How, do you, how, how, how have you applied them to your own kids? And then um, how much do they apply more generally to kids as well as
1: adults? Well, one of my basic principles is that the, the only person you can change is yourself. And it's very tempting to think about what resolutions other people should follow, but the only person that you can change is yourself. That's one of the sort of sad truths of uh, of happiness. And so, all of my resolutions for happier at home are are based on things. It's also, that but you also call it a. Like, come back. Hold
0: on, hold on. You should say that's a sad truth, but it's at the end of your book, you call that a splendid truth.
1: It is a splendid truth, but it's a, it's a, it's a sad truth because so often, you know, whether because of our own convenience or out of a deep sense of love, we wish that we could make people do things or at mm. least you know convince them that they ought to try um and you can't you can't um so it is it's a splendid truth but it's a sad truth or sometimes it's a sad truth um and uh so I don't I didn't really co- go at it thinking like well what resolutions would would make my daughters happier because I'm not giving them resolutions now sometimes they right. were sort of involved in resolutions like one of my favorite resolutions in Happier at Home was I felt like I didn't have enough free, to, uh, like downtime with my older daughter. I had this time in the morning with my younger daughter, but my older daughter went to school earlier and she was busier, so I didn't have any just like quiet hangout time just with her by herself. And so I started, we have a Wednesday adventure. So every Wednesday I pick her up from school and we just do something together. And we call it an adventure, but it's not usually very, very adventurous. But it just means that we're together, and we take turns picking, and it's quiet, and there's no nagging, and there's no errands, and we just hang out. And that, that is really – so that involved her, but it was really a resolution that was, about, that was about me. But one thing that I've noticed, I mean, with this book, is so many people are asking me about how I would translate this for children. And I have many teen readers, which kind of surprised me. And I'm getting a lot of requests from teachers about how to adapt it for the classroom, from as young as kindergarten up the way all the way up through grad school. So I'm thinking maybe I need to grapple with this issue a little bit more about not how would you what would you make your kids do to make them happy, but right. maybe how can you help them think about it in a way appropriate for where they are? Because there's sort of a lack of self-consciousness in children too that I wouldn't want to disturb too much, um, but maybe there are things to do. To get them thinking along these lines early. Well,
0: it's an interesting point. I mean, I think it's actually a really interesting point about the lack of self consciousness among among kids. But at a and I think that's a very very healthy. Um, I don't think that kids need to be deliberative and cogitating over every aspect of their life. They need to live and react and so forth. On the other hand, I do think that there is a certain healthiness to having. The sorts of conversations that your book might inspire within families um, on a whole on a whole range of these things, and so it strikes me that there could be a you know it's interesting you're getting this reaction because it's uh, I think there'd be a ready ready audience for that kind of that kind of subject. You could call it um, you could call it um, um, uh, happier at the beginning, yeah, uh, something like that. (laughs) Yeah. um, it's something you should think of. I mean, I, I think it'd be I think it'd be really interesting. I think you'd have a ready uh, audience in there, and I, I am so not surprised about the teenagers having. Um, yeah, well,
1: that's a very self-reflective time. It's acutely self-conscious.
0: Um, yeah, but also, but also, I think um, uh, really thinking at a depth that yes. many of us don't think. Yes. Really wondering about okay what okay whoa wait a second here I'm now a little bit older whoa okay this is a place is even kind of weirder than I thought where do I fit in who am I what's my place what am I about and it seems like that age group I think would naturally gravitate to these to these kinds of things but um, yeah I mean they um, they
1: are they think about transcendent matters a lot yes. and maybe more than adults tend to.
0: Uh, I think much more than adults tend to yeah. um, having. I mean, being the the father of a sixteen uh, year old and a thirteen year old, and seeing their friends, and I, I think it's a it's a uh, it's a very. Reflect- it seems to me maybe it's just I don't know if it's girls and boys, but I think especially among girls, it's, it's a very reflective time, and and they're actually willing to engage at a depth that I think surprises a lot of adults who fear even who either don't say they can reach those depths or actually think they can and fear dealing with those depths. But um, yes. let, let, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about one of the things I thought was – one of the many things I really liked about about this, this book um, is the um, notion of happiness leeches. Now, oh, right. What are, what are they? Why do they matter? How can they avoid them?
1: Well, a happiness leech is somebody who you're around who just – it sucks away your happiness. And this is, this is a big issue because there's something called emotional contagion, which is really the technical term for it, because we infect each other with our emotions in, in a flash over the phone. The minute you see someone's face through a photograph, you start picking up emotions from other people. And so if there's somebody around you who's a happiness leech, it can have a very powerful effect on your own experience of your day. And, and there's three kinds, I think, of happiness leeches. One are... One is, I think, the most common, and that's the grouches. And those are the people who are persistently negative, who are always pessimistic, who grumble. Then there are the um, jerks. There are fewer jerks, but they maybe are even worse to be around. Those are people who are cruel, who have unkind teasing, who are undermining, who take credit for other people's work, (laughs) who are just jerks. And then there's the slackers. And the slackers are the people who are just slacking off, and they they, – Upset us because they 're taking advantage of us or they don 't do their work, or they, they, they mess things up, hoping that somebody else will take over, or they keep bugging us, asking us questions um, but 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 really the most one of the most common things that comes up in the field of happiness is the question: how do I shield myself from someone else 's persistent negativity? How do mm-hmm. I handle being around a grouch and yeah. um, and it 's hard because we do pick up these emotions, and it seemed to me. The best thing to do is to have a sense of humor, but that's very advanced. and very few people have a sufficient level of maturity to use that. I know that I do not um, but one thing
0: It's also the kind of thing that's hard to just sort of, sort of flip a switch and turn on or off.
1: Yes, exactly, exactly like you yeah you've either got a frame of mind where you can do that, or probably it would be yeah. um, unrealistic. But one thing that seems to be true is that a lot of times what happens is you'll have one person who's more of a tigger, let's say, and one person who's more of an Eeyore. And they keep trying to convince each other to see things the right way. So the tigger keeps saying, look on the bright side, things aren't so bad, and trying to convince yeah. the ear to cheer up. And the ear keeps saying, You're not being realistic. Um, you know, you're you're too much of a Pollyanna. Um you're you know, you're not seeing things clearly. And and they and they antagonize each other and they polarize and exhaust each other. And so what seems to work, or at least what has worked in my case, is if you acknowledge that person's point of view because if you don't acknowledge it, they will keep insisting on it, insisting on it because they're trying to make their point. But if you say, wow, you know, you really feel like the traffic is going to be so bad that we are just not going to be able to get a parking spot. So you you acknowledge that you understand the person's concern and point of view and then let them have their point of view. Don't try to convince them that they're wrong. You know, don't try to make them see things your way because you probably will not succeed you'll probably just annoy that person and exhaust yourself. And so just acknowledge a person's point of view and leave them be, because the Ewers are very, very annoyed um, by the people constantly trying to cheer them up. Um, Whenever I post about this on my blog, I hear from many, many of those people who are just like, oh, my gosh, do not tell me to smile. Do not tell me things aren't that bad. You're making me crazy. Um, So it doesn't do any good, and it just makes everybody um, puts everybody, makes everybody feel more depleted.
0: Uh, and, but it also returns to the sadly splendid or splendidly sad uh, truth that the only person I can change is myself, which is actually right, exactly. And around. so you're not going to you're not, not going to
1: convince somebody to I see the world in a different light.
0: That 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 that, mo- that 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 I think a lot of us in you know I'm in my 40s. A lot of us in our 40s basically sort of realize around now. Um, as you know, as we remain sons and daughters, we become uh, mothers and fathers, we continue to be friends and coworkers, And you say, you know what? I'm not going to change them. And maybe I should be yeah. beating my head against the wall on that. Yeah. I want to go to one more. I can't even believe that we're close out of time here. Um, I'm sorry we didn't get to more calls. We had a little bit of a mess up technologically, but I want to go to the second splendid truth because I think it's um, both uh, complicated and, and, and profound. And let me just read it to everybody. And Gretchen, maybe you can talk a, a little bit about it. Um the second of truth is one of the best ways to make myself happy is to make other people happy. One of the best ways to make other people happy is to be happy yourself. So it's a little bit of emotional contagion there, but tell us what you mean by that. Because I, I, I've still been, I've been thinking about that quite a bit since I read it.
1: Well, I think the first part of it is something that's widely understood and talked about all the time. One of the best ways to make yourself happy is to make other people happy. And there's a lot of discussion about how – you know, if you volunteer, you'll be happier. And if you spend money on other people, you'll be happier. And, you know, it's connection to other people and giving support right. that makes people happier. And people understand that. Um, and well, well,
0: I mean, I think, it's, I think it's widely understood among people who follow these kinds of things. I'm not sure whether it it, it sees more broadly into the culture. That's why I think that, you know, you're writing about it can actually help out quite a bit, that if we, oh. if, we get, if we get to this idea that doing something for someone else is actually not – not only this purely kind of saintly, sacrificial, self-effacing thing, but it actually is ennobling and self-enhancing. I I, think that's actually huge. But anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt.
1: Right. No, that's a very good point. But I guess guess what's widely understood is that it's something that a person should do, whether or not they think you w- that it would actually add to your happiness. But it's, it's clearly like if, somebody, if you say to somebody, like, "Should you do nice? Th- should you be nice to other people?" People would be like, "Yeah, you should be nice to other people," or whatever. You know, what I mean, and to me, that seems hmm. like that's more broadly accepted than the second one. But you're right. Maybe that's maybe I overestimate the the ubiquity of that idea because um, yeah. I read the I mean, stuff even, all the even time. even small
0: things like even small things like like um, like holding open a door for somebody yes. or. That's. What, I'll give you one, I'm sorry to hijack this here, but let me just give you one example that, that really crystallizes for me, which is this. So I was in a hotel, and I uh, had gone running outside, and the only thing I had in my pocket was a hotel key. And I went to the gift shop to on my, back from the run to buy like one newspaper, and I realized I didn't have any cash in my. I didn't have any cash in my. Um,
1: pocket. Uh,
0: pocket. And so I tried to charge it to my hotel, but they were not allow a charge of $1. Okay. Oh. And so this dude in front of me says, Hey, no problem. Well, here's a dollar. And I said, yeah. Oh no, that's thanks. Thanks. I'll just, and I walked away and I looked, I remember, I still remember this day to look on his face. It's like, I didn't realize until afterwards it's like, dang, you know, it's like, I should have like accepting that dollar from that yes. guy would have actually made it. He yes. would have felt good about that.
1: Yes, and, so, yes. and anyway, that's, that's another a, secret of adulthood, which is we can sometimes be generous by taking. Nice. And that's yeah, a good example exactly. of how you can be generous by taking. Yeah, that sometimes yeah. so, so anyways, to allow look, others to give or to contribute is is the greater, is, is, even sometimes if you don't want to. You don't want to be beholden or you don't want to have to deal with them right. helping. Um, so that can be generous. You
0: have whole kind of puritanical thing about, hey, you know, I'm responsible for my own yeah. lot and I should have left with money and who am I to take money from strangers and da-da-da-da. Anyway, but let's go to the yeah, no, second that, part in our, but, in our remaining minute here. One of the best ways to ha- make other people happy is to be happy myself.
1: Yes. And that's because um, I think a lot of people misunderstand that because they worry that it's selfish to want to be happier. And, and so, happiness has this very bad reputation and that people assume that happy people are, are superficial or or stupid or smug um but actually happy people um are more interested in the problems of the people around them and more interested in the problems of the world and they're more altruistic um and so and and because of this emotional contagion and because of the way that we engage with each other with each other if you are happy yourself you are going to make other you're going to help make other people feel happy happy people Make people happy, and you're also going to have the emotional wherewithal to turn outward and to think about other people. And so, mm. while it's absolutely true that one of the best ways to make yourself happy is to make other people happy, it's also true that one of the best ways to make other people happy is to be happy yourself. So you don't have to be, feel guilty, um, or think that you know it's a question between other people and yourself, because it really works in this virtuous cycle.
0: Yeah, that's actually a lovely way to end because I, I, I it, it is, it is not. I think a lot of times we think of it in this kind of transactional way in a, yes. a zero-sum way, and, it, and it's actually – it operates under a very different set of principles and a very yes. different logic, that it, it, yes. that it is positive sum, and there are these kinds of paradoxes where taking is an act of generosity and, and so forth. And I think you've done a great job of, of describing that. So let me just read the second splendid truth again. Uh, it's, it's one of the best ways to make – Myself Happy is to Make Other People Happy. One of the best ways to make other people happy is to be happy myself. I think that's outstanding guidance from our guest, Gretchen Rubin, author of, of course, The Happiness Project. Um, And now a new book. It's really quite excellent. It's another happiness project. It's called Happier at Home. I love the subtitle. Kiss More, Jump More, Abandon Abandon a Project. Read Samuel Johnson and my other experiments in the practice of everyday life um Gretchen is a is an uber blogger you can find her online at www.happiness-project.com happiness-project.com uh you can follow her on twitter at @GretchenRubin, Gretchen Rubin, and yep. on facebook at facebook.com slash Gretchen Rubin um Gretchen thanks for being with us
1: oh well thank you so much fun to talk to you
0: um, this program will be available for download for free in a few days at danpink.com. and um, also be on, uh, also in a few days on uh, iTunes. Uh, we're gonna be announcing some super guests for the next few episodes, so stay tuned to the Office Hours page and the pink blog for more on that. We're just, it's really, I'm really grateful to you. I should have a gratitude list about the great guests we've had. Um, we're gonna have, continue in that tradition very soon. So, uh, until then for, uh, producer Joseph Hinton in Lynchburg, Virginia, Director Jessica Lerner here at World Headquarters. I'm Daniel Pink. This is Office Hours. If you've missed a previous episode, you ought to be ashamed of yourself, but you can listen to any episode you want on
1: iTunes. Thanks, as always, for taking an hour for Office Hours.